Hello, I'm Miles Free, and welcome to PMPA's Speaking of Suppliers podcast. Olaf Tsarsik from JCOM Imports has joined me today, and we're going to discuss his line of parts cleaning solutions. Welcome, Olaf. Thank you, Miles, and I appreciate you doing this. Well, uh, you know, the old days, parts being clean meant that the boxes weren't oil-soaked, and we live in a different world today. What are the markets that are really driving this push towards parts cleanliness uh, for our shops? Well, um, in general, I think at the last, I would say even the last 10 years, we've seen a push from the big three going down to the tier ones and tier twos and tier threes to provide parts that are basically only ready for assembly and don't need to be cleaned at their facilities anymore. So it means for suppliers of parts like our members uh, from the association that they have to supply parts that meet cleanliness specification. Why? Because their customers only want the parts to be assembled and they need to guarantee a certain amount of cleanliness before they can assemble the parts or some RP on it in order to facilitate assemblies. So I think uh, this process has been has started with, of course, the automotive industry 10 some years ago in the US. It was prevalent very much in Europe before and it came to us because it basically reduces the effort of the final customer to assemble their parts because they no longer have to clean them. Well, automotive certainly provides compelling volumes <laughs> to demand that, but I'm thinking that there are other industries as well. All these we we see a huge move to Swiss Swiss machining technology and we're looking at medical parts and and firearms and I'm guessing there's quite a demand for high cleanliness in those applications too. Yes, you're 100% correct, Mark. That's, uh, that, those are other industries. I was initially more focusing on the PMPA type of customers. But if you look at medical customers and customers uh, like a Medtronic or Dupuis, Synthes, uh, Stratec or Strauman, they require certain cleanliness levels for their parts for assembly and uh, it's basically going through all industries. Um, the biggest push I can see is, I would say in general, especially since we are uh, coming out of the last uh, uh, problems with COVID, is basically everywhere in manufacturing cleanliness becomes an issue. And especially because a lot of the old methods of cleaning parts and open top solvent degreasers has become or is becoming difficult in several states and banned in several states and several da dangerous solvents, uh, rightfully so, because they're environmental hazardous, will be banned very shortly here too. Well, I'm, I'm working on that as well on behalf of our members. Uh, trichloroethylene uh, was added to the Tosca list, uh, perchloroethylene, and now n-propyl bromide. And and so you're you're right. The chlorinated halogens have certainly made it to the wanted poster status by the regulators. Uh, but before we start talking about specifics on cleaning, uh, let's talk a little bit about the soils and and how how it is we actually 
measure cleanliness. I mean, <laughs> you know, to a, to the layperson, look, there's either some crud on it or not, but there's actually a lot of science involved in determining if a part is clean, right? Yes, that's correct. I, I appreciate you bringing us back to that main topic there. You're 100% correct, Miles. Uh, and we actually uh, can talk a little bit about it in more detail because we actually are one of the few companies in the U.S. that have a certified accredited cleanliness laboratory. And why did we do this? Well, we, we always say we, we, more, we want to make sure that our parts come out of the machines that we provide very clean. But how do you measure cleanliness? And it was like a big cloud, like you mentioned. So there are some regulations that obviously came and initiated from Europe, which is like the VDA 19 automotive standard. And it has been adapted a lot in the US. And there are basically three things you can, you can measure uh, for cleanliness. One is, of course, the particle size, which is in a lot of specifications. Then the particle weight. And then, of course, you also can, man can measure the surface tension, which can easily be measured on contact angles or dyne. Now, what does all of this mean? Uh, to give you a couple of examples. First, what does mean the gravimetric test, which is particle size and particle weight? So you basically um, have the parts and you have certain amount of metallic and non-metallic uh, parts on them, like fibers and metallic shavings. Particles, sure. And then you basically measure these amounts by weight. You have to have a very, very detailed scale. So you measure, for example, in some cases, 50 parts and measure how much they should weigh uh, uh, theoretically. And then you basically weigh them, uh, how much they come out of the cleaning machine, and you weigh them also before you get into the cleaning machine, and you measure the difference. The second part is also you measure the particle size in an electric uh, microscope, electro raster microscope, and then you basically determine what's the biggest particle size. And you basically determine this is like a 200 micron part particle and how many particles you can have. Right. This That's all gravimetric. And then the second one is surface tension. Unless, sorry, but you had a question, I guess. No, that was actually my question. Microscopy. Gravimetric was the first one you described. That was yes. Great. Yeah, weight and particle size. Right. Those are the two the two things that go together. Right. Yeah. It's weight and particle size. And you have to have a very, very detailed scale and it's a very difficult process that you have to do in a clean room, which we have. And then you can measure this. That's gravimetric. Right. And then using the microscope, you get the frequency of the particles a part count. Mm -hmm. And 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 also the severity, the size of them. That's what you were just describing. Is that right? Yes, that's correct, sir. Absolutely. Okay. So the surface tension, that's, you know, uh tension is measured in units of 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 physics, not not mass. So I'm interested to hear how this works. Yeah, well, there's there's two methods that you can measure it. And 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 first of all, why is surface tension important? Very simple. If you want to basically print on the parts, you need to have a, surf a certain surface tension of the surface in order to make sure that the, that the ink, may maybe laser or something else, sticks to it. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple Lehman's terms. More important is this if you basically put these parts through a surface coating. Of course, that's when the surface coating will not stick unless you have a surface 
a certain surface tension. So there are two ways to measure it. There's a Lehman's method and there's a more scientific method to measure it. The mm -hmm. Lehman's terms, metrics are what's called the Dine test coming out of England. There are certain pens and you basically buy a pen set for a couple hundred dollars that lasts you three months and then you can put a, a coating on the part and you see whenever the, the ink starts to basically disappear, that's when you no longer meet the spec. It's a very <laughs> simple test. Uh, it gets you in the ballpark, but it's not very high-tech high scientific. Pragmatic. That's a one test. It's a pragmatic, but it helps a lot. It gives you a good indication. And then the second one is a more um, better analysis because you measure when you have anything on the surface, you measure at a contact angle, which is the angle from the light going in to the light going out. And it's, of course, a very much more expensive measurement instrument that you have to have in order to do this. It's more accurate, but it, it costs a lot more money and it's probably done in 5% of the cases. Well, I'm sure those are the, the most critical 5% of cases as well. Excuse me, I didn't hear you mention anything about the Millipore test where I, I think I actually did a couple back as a young metallurgist where we'd We'd take a couple parts, we'd, we'd wash them with a s solvent or a solution, and then we'd, uh, we'd pull that solution through a millipore filter with a vacuum, you know, suction kind of thing, and then we'd look at that. Is, is that kind of how you get started in the microscopy test? Yes, 100% correct. You have to have, and I didn't go into that detail, you have to have what, what's called a rinsing cabinet. And the rinsing cabinet has a certain rinsing fluid, which is determined usually by the specification. And you use in that rinsing cabinet a pump and a filter, which is a millipore filter. That's why it's called millipore test. Right. And to go a little bit more into this procedure is before you can do any parts testing, you have to do what is called a blind value. You have to put the parts that you want to measure into the cabinet, and you basically have to do 10 different tests, 10 different washings. And the, the average of the 10 different washings can only be as big as 10% of the value that you want to measure. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. yep. Repeatability, reproducibility. Perfect. Yes, 100%. And once you have done that, then you can actually start to measure and so-called wash the parts in the cleaning cabinet in a clean room. And then you Basically, have your once you're done with all of that, you have the amount of parts and you have the amount of fluid, which is determined by the spec. You basically have then the filter that is wet that you take out after everything is done. And then you basically have to first uh, dry the filter and then, of course, measure the weight of the filter. And then you put the same filter under the microscope to measure the particles. So it makes sense. It, it, it does. And you've got me flashbacks of quantitative chemistry as an undergrad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like grams are big units in, in that class. Yeah. So I think we've, we've really done a nice job of describing the requirements for cleanliness, how we can understand what we mean when we say cleanliness. So now we can talk about the technology that gives us the cleanliness and we'll certainly get to the machines. But I think the very first thing we have 
have to think about in our decision-making is what are we going to use as the cleaner? Is that right? Do I have that right? 100% correct. And that's, I'm very glad you mentioned this because this is the most important decision in the beginning. In the beginning, in Lehman terms, you have basically cutting fluids that you want to get off your parts that are based on oil and you get clean and best with a petrol-based solvent. Mm -hmm. You have cutting fluids that are from water, water water-soluble coolant. You clean and best off by water-based cleaners. It's it's a very simple analogy. Well, it's 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 the words are hydrophilic, right? Water loves water, right? So yes, and hydrophobic. Yep, and and it makes perfect sense. So yeah, so that that's. Where do we go next? Well, you know, you have these polar and non-polar, we call them, or, you know, you can name hydrophobic, hydrophilic. Um, the, the key is, is when we go in, we just first look at the operation of how the parts are being machined. And a lot of times you have a mix, you know, it's like, okay, my parts are being machined initially on a multi-spindle screw machine. And then they basically finished in secondaries, which we all hope to avoid, but sometimes it has to happen. And the secondaries, a lot of times, run with water-based coolant. So then you need to look at the process, how much water do I drag into into the coolant and how much water do I drag into my degreaser? Can I still cope with the water in my degreaser when I use a solvent-based degreaser? That's basically, you know, I can clean both parts with both sol- with solvent and water, because we do aqueous and we do solvent machines, uh, standard and customized machines. So, mm-hmm. but the point is, it has a humongous difference in operating cost if I use if I don't use the right technology for my right cutting fluids. Well, the other thing you said is you you talked about the water load if you were using a petroleum cleaner or yes. vice versa. Uh, there's going to be disposal costs and in the case of water, uh, a minimization or a water reduction. I don't, I don't want to pay to haul away water. I want to haul away the the soil, right? Yeah. So, so he, here's here's how this in general works. Of course, if you talk about the I call them the new solvents, uh, not the chlorinated ones, like the modified alcohols and the hydrocarbons. And modified alcohols and hydrocarbons are good cleaners. They have never as good as a cleaning result like a trichloroethylene. Right. Let's, be, let's be very clear on this. Nothing can beat a trichloroethylene. Yeah? Um, for whatever reason, it's the best cleaner. That's why it was there. But it's very, very cancerogenous and very dangerous. Well, so, those three chlorines make it highly polar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so let's look at a, a you know, the distinction of, um, and we, we see it a lot of times. I have a customer who wants a solvent vacuum degreaser because the advantage of a solvent vacuum degreaser is you don't have to refill your solvent. I don't lose, I lose minimal amounts of solvent so my solvent can stay in the machine for years. And I can also drag out all the oil or whatever is is in there through my distillation process and minimize my sludge tremendously. So, a lot of times, for example, if it's if it's only oil, machine shops actually can reuse that oil that they get out of the degreaser, and it's a closed-loop process. They don't create any waste because the only thing that is 
coming out of the machine is basically the distilled oil that was brought in with the parts and the chips. The chips are basically um, in the filters and the filters get dried so there's no hazardous waste because you don't lose any solvent. That's the general process for the waste stream in the solvent degreaser. So if you can use a solvent-based closed-loop vacuum degreaser, it's perfect. It has the least amount of maintenance to be done. But there are certain differences. If, if you go into a application where you bring water into your degreaser, also a closed-loop vacuum degreaser can handle this, but it depends on the solvent. Why? Because there are certain solvents, new solvents, that can go um, can separate the water and certain ones that don't. For example, the modified alcohol, which a lot of people talk about as one of the most appropriate new solvent. It's a great solvent, uh, and it actually assimilates with the water. Water goes into solution with the solvent. Right Now, the problem with a distillation process is I can very hardly get it get the water out of the system. And for the machine, the issue is the more water I bring in, so the more my vapor pressures in the distillation process climb up and my whole vapor distillation process, my whole distillation process at, at the final end will not work anymore because I've got so much water in my solvent water mixture solution. So that's... That's really we we understand that if if we think of it as layman, it's like denatured alcohol, only in reverse. Yes. We've denatured the water. Hundred <laughs> percent, sir. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I'm I'm glad you brought this in there. So, and that's why modified alcohol is is a good cleaner. But to me, if I can, I always will choose a hydrocarbon. Why hydrocarbons? are similar, but they do not have an affinity to water. So they do not go into solution with a solvent. The water doesn't. So in, in, in their sense, when I do my distillation process, I get my solvent out and I get water out. And but all of this I can separate through gravity, of course. Right. And I can get the water out easily and I can reuse my solvent and I never have a problem. So... I recommend, we recommend a lot of times, if we can use hydrocarbon, we prefer to use hydrocarbon. Well, it makes perfect sense just, you know, the the physics of enforcing that separation, uh, it, it makes perfect sense if the hydrocarbon is capable of lifting the soil. So we've really discussed the chemistry, the background, so let's talk about the technology of these machines. So, uh, you know, in the old days, it was dip and dunk. Sometimes there's agitation. Uh, I think everybody's got the buzzword about ultrasonics. Mm. I remain unconvinced that ultrasonics are the answer for everything. I think there's some applications where it is. So why don't you walk us through the next step of the decision, and that's what exactly are the capabilities the machine needs to have once we've settled on our uh, cleaning solvent? Sure, sure. So depending on your cleaning task, you're 100% correct. Ultrasound is not the general solution for everything. As a matter of fact, in some cases, when you, for example, have pen caps or jewelry that you clean, 
it's counterproductive because it basically dulls the surface. But ultrasound being an implosion on the surface uh, can help a lot. And it's one of the three ways we have what we call in Lehman's terms, mechanical agitation to clean. Right. What is the mechanical agitation we have? One is, of course, ultrasound, because I have an implosion on the surface of the part, which we call mechanical action in fluids. And the second one is what we call, uh, in Lehman's terms, also power washing or pressure washing. Right. Although the machine operates under a vacuum, I can inject solvent vapor pressurized up to uh, 15 bars or, or 400 PSI if needed. That's also creating a mechanical action of removing debris and soils or oils. And the third one is also moving the basket or the carrier in which the parts are carried in. So those are the three mechanics that I can use to in- enhance the cleaning process and not just bring the hot solvent in there, if it makes sense. Right. So uh, you you just mentioned the hot solvent. So there's there's temperatures involved in this as well for uh, to optimize the the removal yes. or the solvolysis, right? It's uh, it's similar for us when we clean our dishes. Why do we do it hot? And again, we also provide a lot of aqueous machines. Uh, aqueous solutions need hot because they work much better if the if the water is hot. And it, the same applies to solvent. Now, there's a certain trick because the solvent machines uh, that work under a vacuum, with a vacuum, I reduce the boiling point of solvents. Yeah, because the lower the vacuum is, the lower I make the boiling point. So, so the more vacuum I can pull, the less I need to boil. Right. You're, it really energizes that, that cleaning action with that low pressure. Correct. And it basically avoids, and that's a big difference to an aqueous machine, it avoids, like an aqueous machine, I have to spend a lot of heat to heat the water up to 212 degrees to evaporate it. On a solvent degreaser, I um, I do not have to do this because I operate under vacuum. So my solvents usually, in or for any, any, any vacuum-based solvent degreaser, the solvents, modified alcohol or, or hydrocarbons, they operate on like... 70 to 75 degrees Celsius. That's how they operate under vacuum of 100 millibars. And because you have the vacuum, you do not have to heat them up that much. Yeah, And it still allows you to do the vapor degreasing. Makes, makes perfect sense. So uh, let's, let's talk about the shop's application. So a small shop, a few, a few, you know, uh, serious products, maybe a single chamber kind of unit could work. But what about a shop with multiple product streams, multiple technologies? Uh, Are they going to need multiple machines? Or do you have a machine that has the capability of doing both the aqueous and a a solvent uh, clean? Well, you know, we have a, um, that I'm glad you bring this up for a, for a smaller shop, like you mentioned in the beginning, there's basically a single, single chamber uh, solvent degreaser makes sense. For bigger shops, you can have bigger systems. And uh, because they have multitudes of uh, coolant that they use, oil-based or water-based coolant, 
we recommend a lot of times a unit, what we call a twin tech, which is basically a combination of an aqueous and a solvent degreaser in the same machine, which allows the customer to do both uh, completely automatic, automatically uh, cleaned. And the, the kicker for, for this technology is, and that's why it's patented, is um, you don't want to bring in water, especially water with a low pH or with a high pH into the solvent because it destroys your solvent immediately. So the kicker is to keep both separated very, very, very good and very pristine so that over time, excuse me, there's no mixture. So we recommend for shops that basically have the need to, to look at an aqueous process for cleaning and a solvent process, we recommend that we have installed several of those machines in the U.S., uh, which we call it TwinTech, to have both processes included. That assures we have the separation and we're not bringing in tramp water or tramp oil. And uh, so the thing we haven't talked about is consumables. So we've talked a lot about getting that solvent or that, that cleaning solution distilled, recycled, returned, cleaned. But we've got the, the doggone soils right those non-metallic and metallic particles mm-hmm. so you've got you've got to have some filters cartridges fabric mm-hmm. bags i don't know you've got to have consumables how big a of an, an expense are the consumables how, how do you how do you estimate that when you're trying to understand the economics of this yeah so if, if you remember, I've, uh, and I'm glad for the question, which is a very good question. We've had a seminar at one of the um, um, tech conferences a couple of years ago where I explained this. And uh, it's very clear is, um, first of all, the consumables of an aqueous machine versus a solvent machine before I go to the solvent debris. The aqueous machine is has probably double the amount of... Um, how to call it, energy and all kinds of other stuff I need. So the, the hourly rate of an, of an aqueous machine, same purchase price, is double usually. So okay. what do I, and that's why a lot of people favor the solvent process if they can, because the solvent process has only a use of a fifth of the energy of an aqueous machine. It's not the purchase price. A lot of times aqueous machines are initially less expensive to purchase, but the operating costs are five times as high compared to a solvent degreaser. So coming to your consumables, um, filter bags. Filter bags are standard US-based Eaton filter bags or Rosedale filter bags. They go for $20 to $30 filter. And you can give them all different sizes from 50 micron down to one micron or 0.1 micron. And they can become cartridges or you can also have uh, centrifugal filters, several filters are available. We recommend usually a lot of times using the back filters and es- especially, you know, like let's say a big machine shop who has, let's just say 20 to 30 multi-spindles running 24-6 they, and have a lot of chips. Uh, they bring in, um, we recommend to have two filters in the first station um, because then you can basically exchange one filter after a while you run the machine with a second filter and then you have a second filter and the second station and the, and the third filter for the third station. So 
they're all separate. And the kicker is, is here, how many chips do I bring in? We have several customers that don't have a chip spinner. They bring in the parts fresh from their machines and which is fine. In this case, in this case, we basically have higher filters and we can customize these filters. They're not, I have standard filters, but I can double or triple if needed. And so far, I haven't seen a problem. Most shops usually change their filters once every week or, or once every other week. Uh, and because we try to size them correctly to the chip load, and then they don't have a problem. So, so that's the chips themselves. And the chips, before you basically take the chips out of your filter because the machine operates in a vacuum, you basically dry your filters. And the advantage of that is that your chips come out dry and they're no longer considered hazardous waste, they're normal waste. So you don't have to have a specific waste certificate because there's no solvent on it and no oil on it. So they're basically clean chips too, if you want to, you know, in Lehman terms, say this. So you have, you have no hazardous waste declaration to be done for your chips that come off the degreaser. Right. No carryover. No carryover. No carryover. Yeah. The second waste stream comes from the distillation process of your solvent. You know, as I mentioned before, your solvent stays in the machine for one, two, sometimes up to five years. We have customers of the association that have basically, after five years, never changed their solvent. Now, why do they not have to do this? That's part of the technology of the specific machines. And I don't want to compare machine builders here. Uh, but the key is is what you get out of your um, distill is basically what you bring into your solvent. And that's, that has to happen in order to make sure you can regenerate your solvent and always keep it pristine. So what comes out of it is uh, most of the time, if you screw machine shop and only bring oils in it, is the oil. And of course, a lot of times it's diluted with whey oil from bar feeders or with hydraulic oil. Mm-hmm. But a lot of screw machines, for example, you know, um, screw machines at the company that I partnered with for years ago, we basically told all our customers and we certified it that, hey, you can use that oil that comes out of your degreaser and put, pour it back into your uh, machine in the chip conveyor. No problem. You can reuse it because it has less than 5% of uh, solvent in it. Less than 5%. So that's that's not going to interfere with the, uh, the the film properties at all, is it? No, it doesn't. It, the, the, and the only reason it has up to 5% of solvent in it, it's when it comes out of the, um, out of the bucket is because we want to keep it fluid coming out of the, uh, distill. Right. Um, the, the amount of solvent uh, evaporating goes very quick and it, after two days, it's down to one, 1%. The only thing that is sometimes, that's why we sometimes do when it, when we have high tech, uh, cutting applications, uh, we need to make sure that some of the additives didn't get diluted through the distillation process and keep their stuff. So if you have, for example, you know, if you cut a wasp alloy uh, and you want to reuse your oils, I would recommend before I reuse my oils to do it, do a test through a laboratory if I can reuse it. Because if all the properties that made this oil so special for cutting my wasp alloy are gone, then, you know, your tool life is going to go very bad. Right. Well, replenishing solvent, uh, 
on in a on a small but regular basis sounds a lot better than having to manifest hazardous waste trumps on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. Yes. So your your company sells uh this machines, you work with your customers to look at the application to get the right machine. And the company and they 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 have confidence in their customers. So they they'd like to purchase and install a machine. And then the big deal is what if it breaks? Yeah. It's- what 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 who what what am I doing now? Because my machinists are great machinists, but they're not really vacuum distillation technicians, right? 100%. You, you mentioned a very important thing So uh, for us. Um, and my background, as you know, is, is machining. And uh, a lot of machine shops think uh, of, of the degreaser once they have purchased one of these closed-loop vacuum degreasers as a big gray box coming parts in and getting stuff out. So... So uh, I think the key is is having training and having support. We have a support organization uh, since, I don't know, we've done this since 2008. We've headquartered here in Indianapolis where I am currently, and we also have a subsidiary that we opened a year ago in California. And we have local service at both locations, plus we have local service also in New England. Uh, and to me, that's that's a very important factor. You can have the best machine in the world if you don't have support. Screw that one, you know. Uh, why, do, why do you want to buy a Ferrari if, if you drive down the highway and you stay and have to wait for roadside assistance? That doesn't make a good impression. So it's the same with your degreaser. So the one thing is, of course, having customer service support, and we have, uh, we're lucky we have a good customer service organization, Plus, we also have have with our machines, and several machine tool builders have that too with their machines, remote access. That means all our machines are remotely accessible, and we basically monitor the machines while they are in operation. And we give our customers a monthly protocol of what we've seen monitoring the machine over months. And then we can see, hey, this is, needs to be done, and we recommend and we offer to a lot of our customers, and they take advantage of it also, as maintenance programs. So we come in twice a year to do the half year or, or every six months maintenance with the customers. That's a good means. Plus, what else do we offer in support? Well, we all got challenged through COVID that we were not allowed to, to travel and not allowed to go to our customer plans. We basically used what we called augmented reality tools. We call it virtual reality glasses. The aerospace industry uses it since years for assembly of their planes worldwide and training. And we have introduced it and we used it or we're using it a lot for our customers for online support. If a customer has a problem and he is in a remote location or or wants a quick fix, we basically <clears throat> can log on to the system. They put their so-called virtual reality glasses on and show us where their problem is. And we can actually, while they look at the machine and while they operate the machine, we can show them in this small little eyepiece that they have in their in their virtual glasses uh, via Bluetooth uh, audio connection, noise canceled, so that they can see what we can see and we can show them annotations of the screen and walk them through it. So 
We were challenged with COVID through not getting into customers, but we actually excelled through looking into a new technology. And it, I think it got us into a new level of customer support. And a lot of customers, especially customers that are remote, they use this tool very heavily and it has been very successful. Well, that's that's high tech, that's gee whiz. But I have to tell you, I am much more impressed. And I'm not, not saying I'm not impressed with that, but, but the fact that you have this ability to predict based on getting status reports real time from the equipment. Um, I, there's to me, anticipation yes. is really the value that we add as managers and to use the data, the process data to anticipate and predict and prevent failure. Um, boy, that you just don't get higher marks from me than that. Olaf, what did we fail to discuss as we wrap this up? What what did I forget to ask? Um, first of all, it's very, very, very good preparation on your end. So thank you so much for these interesting questions. The one thing I think, and it's probably a discussion for another, another day, is the whole part of aqueous cleaning, where we do also um, – uh, uh, preparation with um, RP that we use in solvent machines, but also where we use uh, passivation in aqueous machines and all kinds of stuff. So uh, one thing is uh, rust prevention in solvent machines, and of course it goes in over to passivating in aqueous machines. So RP is a lot of times something that a customer wants to do. If you wanted to, uh, want us to talk about the need or not the need of RP, I think that would be valuable for customers too. All right. Let's uh, see if we can't do that down the road then. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us, Olaf. Thank you. It was very interesting to talk to you, Miles, like always. Thanks so much.